Hey guys, you're listening to the Tasha Labs podcast, and today we have a bit of a format change. So you have been listening to this podcast, you know that I've never had guests on my show. So the reason is there's frankly so much going on in the Web3 space, and I write so much, and there's really way more than enough materials for me to talk about uh, without bringing anybody else on. But you know, there's nothing wrong with uh, having guests on, and I recently wrote about. Uh, what I call the huge、uh, roadblocks for the next stage adoption of Web3, the quote-unquote big challenges or big problems that we see in Web3 today, and my thesis is the projects that are helping to solve these problems, if they're successful, they will be the next big things. So after I wrote about that, I got a lot of feedback from people saying, "Hey, Tasha, you are being too abstract. What are exactly the projects you are talking about?" So I figure it would be useful to bring some examples of the projects on that I think are doing the hard things and doing the big things that you know will give people some perspectives on what 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 you can expect or what's、uh, going to be coming in in the next couple years in the space, right? So, and also if you are a founder operator in the Web three space, I also Hope that this will be helpful to you in the sense that、uh, you know it'll be useful to see what other people who are building, solving hard problems in the space, and what they are doing, and how they are solving some of the navigating some of the challenges. So I I hope that will be helpful to you if you're founder navigator in the Web three space. Also want to emphasize that obviously none of this is investment advice, and I'm not endorsing any projects that I. Potentially bring on this podcast because, frankly, I bring those projects on because I'm curious. I see them doing interesting things, and I want to know more. Okay, so that is the perspective that why I invite these projects on. So I will be asking questions that, as a potential investor, as a potential maybe participant and advisor of the pro- of a project, will want to know. Really, this is to help your own information gathering process、uh, too. Help you to know more about the space and the future of the Web3 space. So today we are going to be talking to Jay Jog, who is the founder of Say Network, and Say Network is a new Layer One blockchain trying to solve the scaling issue in DeFi. Without further ado, let's get started. Hey Jay, tell us so what what is、uh, Say Network? Yeah, so I guess I could give a brief background about myself and then also go into what Say is.、Um, totally. So about me. I'm a co-founder of Forsay.、Um, I personally got into crypto back in 2017. At that time, my roommate he was going through Binance Launchpad, so we worked on a few different things together.、Um, after that, I ended up joining Robinhood. So I spent almost four years at Robinhood, saw the company 10x, and it was definitely interesting to work over there because one thing that Robinhood did really well is they were able to get retail to start trading options.、Um, people in TradFi have tried to do that forever. In DeFi,、um, protocols have been throwing incentives to users to be trading. Um, and no one else has really been able to replicate that. So I think Robinhood did a really good job with that.、Um, on the other hand, the way that Robinhood handled GME was definitely a mess. And I'm sure you were following along with it last year, but from a public standpoint, it was not very good. And also from like an internal standpoint, there was just a lot of lack of transparency.、Um, mm-hmm. That kind of left a bad taste in my mouth.、Um, so because of that, last year my co-founder and I we decided it would be interesting to build something like Robinhood on chain.、Um, specifically, we started building a derivatives exchange on chain. Um, and this led to us investigating all the layer ones, layer twos, and all the other infrastructure out there. And we ultimately came to the realization that building an exchange on chain, especially an order book exchange, doesn't really work.、Um, so because of that, we started building Say, 
which is an L1 that is optimized for exchanges and trading. Hmm. So who are your target users? What, what kind of users will benefit from, from the same network? Yeah, so what say is, is an L1 chain that has an order book and magic engine that's built into it. So any kind of exchange that wants to build on top of say can make use of this order book primitive um, and they can easily create new markets and they can make use of the matching engine to help match and fill trades. So a very clear type of user would be a developer that's trying to build an exchange, especially an order book exchange. Um, they could pretty easily build on top of say. Um, but what we've been seeing now is that in any kind of DeFi ecosystem, there tends to be strong network effects. Um, as soon as you have one project that is able to get a lot of TBL and a lot of users, it becomes very strategic for other projects to come into that same ecosystem um, and start building, right? So at this point, what we've seen is we have over 50 ecosystem projects that are building on top of SIT. Um, and these are teams that have come from other ecosystems like Solana and Terra and Nier. Um, and yeah, I mean, all of them are just pretty excited about the DeFi ecosystem that say is enabling, not, not just directly through the Dexter-related use cases, but just in general, because um, there is going to be an entire uh, kind of DeFi ecosystem that gets built out over here. Okay, so if I hear you correctly, the basic use case is for like, for example, a DEX that wants to use a on-chain order book. Exactly, yes. So if we step back for a little bit, okay, because uh, over the past couple of years, the major innovation in decentralized exchanges is automatic market makers. So that's mm -hmm. what like uh, protocols like Uniswap use, right? So yeah. can you tell us just compare like the AMM and the order book, right? So first of all, why, why, why did the decentralized exchange start with the AMM approach, not order book approach? Yeah. Um, so order books are effectively the backbone of how traditional finance works right now. Um, it is the default way that exchanges work in TradFi. Um, the problem is that you can't easily bring that onto a blockchain because things get too expensive and slow, especially on Ethereum L1, which is where a lot of DeFi was happening before. Um, so one of the major reasons that AMMs were kind of created and became more popular in DeFi is because of these limitations around building an order book on chain. So in terms of like what an order book is and what an AMM is, like an order book is basically just a list of trades. Um, so it'll have a list of people that say they want to, let's say, buy Bitcoin for $9 and sell Bitcoin for $10. Um, whereas an AMM is a pool where people can go and deposit, let's say, two tokens, and then other people can come and trade against this pool. So with an order book, you need people who are called market makers to be putting trades on this order book so that other people can come and buy assets from it. And this requires a lot of transactions to be going through, which doesn't really work on any kind of general purpose chain. Definitely did not work on Ethereum. Um, on the other hand, with an AMM, it's very simple. Uh, you can have liquidity providers that just passively put in a couple of tokens, and then afterwards people can come and trade against it. So that's why DEXs have been historically built on top of AMMs, um, at least in DeFi so far. And we think that newer L1s like Safe, for example, um, that have really high throughput, Really low, really low latencies will be much better at enabling any kind of order book based use case because they're kind of solving a lot of the problems that we're seeing right now um, with trying to build an order book on a general purpose chain like Ethereum or Solana. So, well, in addition to that, and by the way, thanks for the overview of the comparison of the two models. But in addition mm -hmm. to that, is it also correct to say that AMMs are really um, more suitable for a wider variety of assets? Because uh, for an order book to work, you need to have orders, right? So for a really mm -hmm. long tail asset, like if I launch a Pasha coin today, 
right? I have like yeah. uh, five holders of this token, let's say on day one. And I have like, uh, I don't know, $10,000 of liquidity <laughs> uh, for this token. Um, that, that order book will not work, right? So in the case of uh, um, the DeFi space, anybody, because it's open and permissionless, anybody can launch any tokens. So it's really mm -hmm. the AMN approach is more user-friendly for the long tail of assets. Is that correct? Yes, I would agree with that statement. So if you're getting a new token created that's going to have very low liquidity, or even like an established token with very low liquidity, it's going to be difficult to find market makers who will help provide these orders to be placing on an order book to be enabling seamless trading. So I think there's a few types of use cases where AMMs end up being a better choice. Um, long tail assets end up being one of these use cases that are better. Um, the other use case is if you primarily want retail to be providing liquidity. Um, in that case, retail isn't going to be updating their positions every single block or like every single second or something. Um, so in that case, it ends up being better to have an AMM um, supporting the exchange as well. But in a lot of other cases, especially if you have deeper liquidity or market makers are open to making markets, um, an order book ends up being better because it leads to better pricing and better capital efficiency than making use of an AMM sell approach. Got it. So obviously we've had order book books on chain before a famous one is Serum in Solana, right? So yeah. what, what's not working in, in Serum? Why, why do we need a new chain for order books? Yeah, so we don't really think it's Serum's fault, but we think that fundamentally you can't build an order book on a general purpose chain. It just does not scale. Um, and there's a few different issues that come up. The first issue, which is particularly true for Serum and also other exchanges built on like Ethereum, for example, um, is tied to network congestion. Um, basically, you are not going to be necessarily able to always get in your trade. Um, this ends up being really, really bad for any kind of order book based exchange, because in an order book based exchange, um, you need market makers to be constantly updating their positions. And if they have congestion issues, then they will not be able to cancel their positions. And then other traders who might be able to get in a trade will be able to pick them off. So this ends up being really, really negative. Um, and that's one of the reasons why Serum has been having some trouble. Um, the other issue is just, try, is just tied to um, latency. So you ideally want block times to be really low, which um, for a lot of exchanges that are not built in this Lana ecosystem, like they're honestly quite so, like even uh, newer blockchains right now, like Aptos and Sweet, they have around two to three second block times, which is not ideal for an order book. Um, so that ends up being one of the other issues. And the last issue is that if you're building an order book as a smart contract on the layer one, you can't really optimize the layer one to lead to the best performance for the order book. I mean, we think that's pretty important for any kind of DEX because DEXs are one of these really finicky types of applications that have really high throughput and latency requirements. And if you're able to make optimizations to better support an order book, it's going to lead to much better user experiences. And you can also help things uh, such as preventing front running. Um, so that's why we decided that it makes a lot more sense to build a layer one that is optimized for trading. Um, so we've been able to make a lot of changes at the chain level to first of all, support a matching engine that is able to do things very intelligently. Um, and we've also been able to change the way that consensus and block propagation work to lead to better performance. So um, at this point, say is the fastest chain to finality out there. In our DevNet, we're seeing 600 millisecond block times. Uh, we have ideas how to make that even faster. Um, and if you compare this, like Solana, for example, it has probabilistic finality. So it doesn't actually get finalized until two to three seconds after, um, I guess, a block has been technically committed. Um, so yeah, we think that the approach that say is taking is going to be pretty interesting in the future. 
So if I hear you correctly, what you're saying is uh, on a generalized blockchain like Solana, because you have so many other applications running on chain and any kind of congestion that coming from other applications is going to affect your order book executions. Uh, but the order book is the type of applications that need to be like consistent and reliable. So you, you need some kind of uh, consistently faster throughput and finality. Is that right? Exactly. So Solana was originally made with the intention of being like um, a finance hub. And at that time, it wasn't really having any NFT mints or any games or any kind of random miscellaneous activity happening on the blockchain. But what has now become the case is that Solana is becoming much more geared towards NFTs and games. And as a result, DeFi is being put on the back burner. And whenever things like NFT mints happen, for example, that leads to just traders not being able to get in their orders. Um, and that severely impacts the performance. Um, one other thing that's definitely interesting about Solana specifically is their programming model only allows you to update a certain number of accounts per transaction. Um, and the way that this manifests itself in Serum's case is that Serum is not able to have a user place a trade and have it get filled in one transaction. It actually takes three separate transactions. And there's someone that's actually running a crank turning um, process off chain, which basically takes like users need to place a transaction that'll add their order to a queue. Then someone turns that crank and then afterwards that order will get matched. And in the third transaction, someone will turn the crank again, and that's when the order actually gets filled. So um, in the approach that Say is taking, we're able to just do all of that in one transaction because of the way that um, Say is built and because we're able to just add in custom logic at the base level. That's quite interesting. So, but before we get into more specifics about the project, because I'm a macro person, I always want to look at things from a big picture point of view, right? So mm -hmm. why do we even need order books to be in the DeFi space? I mean, centralized exchanges, they have order books, you have order books on you know, Coinbase, you have fun FTX, it works perfectly fine. So why yeah. do we have to have this in DeFi? What's the additional value added? I think the biggest differentiator is going to be, I think there's two things. Um, the first one is going to be around uh, composability. And I think this is the biggest value driver um, because everything is open source or generally open sourced in DeFi um, because it's very easy for different projects to interact with each other. I think that there's going to be much faster innovation happening in um, DeFi overall. Um, and definitely, I mean, that is going to lead to more interesting use cases for um, DEXs in the future. So I think the composable nature of DEXs make them very interesting to be building on. Um, and the second piece is kind of around regulation, like centralized exchanges are more heavily regulated, whereas DEXs end up being, um, I guess, kind of regulated in a different way. So I think that's also going to be one of the reasons why DEXs are more appealing. And I, I guess the last reason is just around transparency. Um, and I saw this with Robinhood and that's like, wh whenever there is lack of transparency that um, leads to situations you don't necessarily want to be in where like users don't know what's happening um, with the decisions that are being made by an exchange or by a company. And we saw this with 3AC as well recently, but in any kind of decentralized system, it ends up being permissionless. So there's very strong cost guarantees you can have that like the exchange isn't making incorrect use of your funds. Um, then you can see exactly what the balances are. So uh, it, 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 am I understanding correctly that uh, for this type of high performance uh, order book approach, you would uh, actually gear more towards uh, institutional or professional trading kind of uh, user base in, instead of you know, retail traders or retail investors, not even traders, but you know, mm -hmm. who, like uh, execute a, a transaction once every two months or that kind of thing. Yeah, so I, I guess to your question, are we geared more towards institutions or to retail? Yes. 
Yeah, so we don't think that institutions are ever going to be the first movers. Like, yeah, it'd be great if institutions were trading on top of, say, from day one. Um, but realistically, they, they just have too much money at stake. So they're never going to be the first movers to enter any kind of ecosystem like this. Um, so what we do think is going to happen is that retail is going to become more interested in uh, the applications that are built on top of, say. And then that'll, like, once there is organic retail demand for an ecosystem, that's when it becomes much more interesting for exchanges to come and start building on top of it. So. We think that the order of operations for say is going to be um, first, there's going to be uh, like some projects that take off and there will be retail users that start uh, making use of say and afterwards institutions will start coming on. You know, uh, that's quite interesting because uh, the, the, the reason that your project caught my eyes is because I feel a lot of pain trading like uh, executing transactions in DeFi. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't know how many times I have sworn to myself, this isn't the last time I'm gonna use the freaking Uniswap because yeah. it's just like the analyst problems, you know, front running, transactions get dropped, transactions are slow, you don't get the price you want, you don't get the price that you, the, the application tells you that you will get all sorts of issues, all right? So when I talk to like uh, DeFi applications and then, Granted, some of the problems is, is related to the application, but a lot of problems that the application layer cannot solve because it's the issues, limitations related to the underlying blockchain. Exactly. So that's why I think you guys are really, you know, solving, uh, trying to solve a important issue that is going to help the DeFi scale and improve the user experience a lot more. So I think, first of all, that is going in the right direction. So congratulations. Mm -hmm. uh, so I, I want to know more about uh, your project. So how do you um, how how do you guys uh, come up with uh, the uh, idea, and how does the team come together? Yeah, yeah. So in terms of the idea itself, we were originally trying to build a derivatives exchange on chain. Um, so this led to us investigating the different types of layer ones, layer twos, and all of the other infrastructure out there that we could get something like that built. Um, and that's when we ultimately came to the realization that there's no good infrastructure to build an order book exchange on right now um, for a lot of the same reasons that I was talking about before. Um, and then we also noticed that building something that is more use case specific ends up being quite interesting. Um, so if you look at the existing layer ones out there right now, they kind of fall under two extremes. Um, on one side, you have general purpose chains like Ethereum and Solana. And on the other hand, you have more application specific ones like Osmosis and DYDXv4. And we think the most interesting design space isn't on either one of these extremes, but rather right in the middle. Um, and it's basically a use case specific um, design space. And we think this is pretty interesting because it gives us the benefits of both general purpose chains and also application specific chains. Um, so from the general purpose side, the two big things you get are composability. So being able to execute atomic transactions across multiple different projects um, and social coordination. So having all the teams that are building on top of an ecosystem, you're basically on the same team and it allows an ecosystem to grow 10 times faster than if you're just a siloed application specific chain. Um, the benefit of it being an application specific chain is that you get customizability, right? So you're able to tailor make your chain end to end for the specific type of application that you're trying to support. Um, so because of what the approach that we took being use case specific, we end up getting the benefits of both sides. We're able to not only just customize the chain to have an order matching engine and to change the consensus layer to lead to the best performance for our specific use case, but we're also able to create a thriving DeFi ecosystem on top of it. So I think that the use case specific approach is um, quite interesting. And in terms of our team itself, it was, it's just me and my co-founder Jeff, like we originally 
uh, were part of the same debate league back in high school. So we both grew up in the Bay, and then uh, we kind of debated against each other. And then afterwards, my friends from high school went to Cal with him, so then they became really close. Um, and then afterwards, I started hanging out with him. Um, we started our last company together in 2019, and then 2021, we decided that uh, we wanted to run it back, and that's kind of how everything got started with Say. Got it. So as you said, you are kind of uh, in between the application-specific chain and general-purpose chain because you want to capture just serving the DeFi industry and specific type of DeFi applications. So mm -hmm. if I'm a um, decentralized exchange, uh, I, I could have just like built my own rollup, right? I can go become a layer two on Ethereum or on whatever, um, like DYDX mm -hmm. did. Uh, and like you said, I can maybe customize the infrastructure more compared to using someone else's uh, as, as uh, you know, uh, infrastructure. So mm -hmm. what, what's, the, what's the value added of Say to convince me to actually build on Say instead of uh, run my own chain? Yes, so a few different thoughts around that. The first thought is that it's really, really difficult to build your own infrastructure and also build your own text on top of it. Like these are two of the hardest problems out there in crypto right now and trying to solve both of them at the same time is very difficult to do. Um, so we think it makes a lot more sense to focus on just building a good DEX and leaving the scalable infrastructure piece of it to someone else. Um, the second thought is you mentioned rollups on Ethereum. Um, we don't think that rollups on Ethereum can handle the kind of throughput that an order book needs. The advertised throughput that all of these rollups are supporting around like low thousands of transactions per second and like the actual performance you see is even less than that, like in the hundreds of transactions per second. Um, with DYDX v3, with their kind of centralized order book approach, um, they are already seeing around a thousand orders per second they need to process. So even the current rollups out there don't really work for an exchange like DYDX, and that's just one exchange, right? And as it scales, it's going to become even more problematic. So as a result, that's why DYDX is moving over to the Cosmos ecosystem and creating their own blockchain, because they saw the same issues around that. Um, the last thought around why build on top of, say, versus creating your own chain. Um, I think it falls kind of around this idea of um, network network effects of DeFi ecosystems. Like if you try to create your own L1 chain, then you need to get everything up off the ground. Like you need to set up the onboarding tooling. You need to set up the kind of like uh, setting up the bridges and everything else that is required to get an L1 off the ground. Um, whereas if you build on top of say, and we already have applications that are there, there's already users, there's already TVL. So it makes it much easier for you as a new exchange um, to get kickstarted versus needing to set up everything by yourself. So in terms of uh, performance speed and uh, finality, that kind of parameters, can you give us some numbers in terms of comparisons of say compared mm -hmm. to, I don't know, Solana or NASDAQ? Yeah, yeah. So say is currently seeing 600 millisecond block times in our devnet. And this is with a kind of internationally distributed validator set. Um, in our internal testing, we actually saw 300 millisecond block times. And this is with validators that are kind of in the same geographic region. Um, so it's definitely quite fast. And this is using Tendermint Core, so it's delegated uh, proof of stake and it's going to have instant finality. Um, in terms of the upper bound, what we're seeing, we're seeing around 18,000 orders per second that can be processed. And these 18,000 orders per second come with 800 millisecond block times. So it's definitely able to handle the kind of load that you would want to see um, from an exchange standpoint. Um, in terms of Solana right now, so Solana has probabilistic finality, so it's not actually finalized until around two to three seconds after a block has been kind of committed. Um, so because of that, like it's definitely not ideal to have like.
kind of this probabilistic finality approach. We think an instant finality approach makes more sense. Um, and yeah, I mean, in terms of NASDAQ, it's in the hundreds of thousands of orders per second that they're able to process. So say it is working to um, help scale the infrastructure out, but realistically the point in which we would be processing hundreds of thousands of transactions per second is when say is already one of the biggest blockchains out there. So we do have ideas around how to scale say, but um, right now we're focusing more on getting ready for mainnet and launching the core chain rather than trying to kind of optimize before we even have any users on mainnet. But you're, you're claiming that you're the fastest uh, chain, uh, layer one chain out there for DeFi. So that's kind of a big claim, right? Don't you think so? I mean, we, we, we definitely are the fastest chain out there right now. Like if you look at the kind of lower bound for block times that we're seeing, it's substantially faster in terms of actual finality than any other chain out there. Um, and I mean, the we have an incentivized testnet that's running, a devnet that's running. And yeah, I mean, it, we are definitely seeing block times that are faster than Solana or other ecosystems as well. So I think that there is data to back that up. So just on a high level, uh, can you tell us how you're able to get to the fast finality? You said uh, uh, sub-sec- sub-second uh, finality, right? And uh, mm-hmm. six, 600 millisecond block time. Correct, yes. So, so, so how, how are you able to do that? Yes, so I think the biggest kind of trade-off that we're making over here is we're making use of the smaller validator set compared to an ecosystem like Ethereum. Um, so in the case of, say, we're likely going to be launching with somewhere around 50 validators in that launch and then start growing the validator set out from there. And we think that this is the right approach because we care a lot about having good performance for the order book. And this trade-off will enable good performance for the order book. Um, the second piece of it is that we don't actually think there's that big of a difference between, let's say, 50 validators and 5,000 validators because there ends up being kind of a centralization of a lot of the validator stake anyway. Like even in Ethereum right now, you're seeing some groups like Lido and Coinbase that end up having a lion's share of the staking voting power anyway. Um, so that, that's one of the biggest things is around the validator set being smaller. The Outside of that, like we just added in a bunch of optimizations around how consensus and block propagation work in Sales case. So a couple of things that I'll mention around that is the way that Tendermint normally works is you gossip transactions between all the different validators. And then the block proposer proposes a block that has every single transaction inside of it, along with its full content, which is kind of unnecessary if you think about it, because every validator already has all these transactions in its mempool. So what we're doing is we are propagating, we're proposing blocks and only including transaction hashes inside of these block proposals. And by using this approach, we decrease the amount of bandwidth that's necessary to send the block proposal to the other nodes. And if for some reason one of these nodes doesn't have one of these transactions, then they can just pull it from one of the other nodes. So um, that's one thing that we're working on. Another thing that we added in was around optimistic block processing. So there's different phases of voting in Tendermint. So we are voting after the pre-vote step is done, we're starting to optimistically process the block, which leads to improved performance as well. Um, And we've also added in parallelization. So there's a lot of custom changes that we've made at the application and consensus level that's also leading to better performance. That's interesting. So in terms of executing the project, when you got the idea of starting, say, what are some of the first things that you did? Uh, I mean, we started building the chain out and we also started talking with other teams as well, just to get their thoughts about the project. Um, But yeah, I mean, we initially ended up getting the chain built out, made sure that the order matching engine was working. Then we launched a testnet um, just to kind of see how the community felt about the project overall. And there was, I mean, honestly, a lot more interest in the project than we had originally anticipated um, because the launching of our testnet actually also aligned with a lot of the crypto downtrend that was happening. So there was 
the terror collapse that had happened, there were a lot of other mm -hmm. teams that were feeling pretty unhappy with the ecosystems that they were building on. So even pretty early after launching on Testnet, there ended up being a lot of interest from teams in like Solana ecosystem, Terra ecosystem that wanted to come and build on top of it, just because uh, it seemed like an interesting way for them to build a good exchange. At what point did you start looking for investors, looking for funding? Yeah, so after we launched the testnet in May, that's when we felt it was the right time to start fundraising. Um, that was also probably, all things considered, the worst time to be fundraising in the past year um, because mm -hmm, the mm -hmm. general crypto market was like, I, we were raising when like Ethereum was like $900 at one point. So it definitely was, was it, not the... Was it know, after after the Luna uh, accident, quote unquote? <laughs> yeah, yeah, we were raising close to the end of May. So it was right after everything had happened with Terra. Um, and yeah, I mean, we ended up getting quite uh, fortunate that we found really good partners to be working with. But I will say that that time was not an easy time to be fundraising. Um, so yeah, it was definitely, definitely tough to be fundraising in like late May, early June. But obviously, you managed to get some uh, investors with uh, good credentials on board. I think uh, Multicoin, is that your lead investor for your was that seed or which round was that? Yeah, yeah, this is the seed round. And yeah, we were super happy to be working with Multicoin as the lead investor for the round. Um, it ended up aligning pretty well for us to be working with Multicoin because Multicoin has experience growing out the Solana ecosystem. And they've also worked with a lot of DeFi applications in the past as well. So it makes sense for them to help build out a DeFi ecosystem. Um, so yeah, I mean, we, we definitely are happy with the way things ended up working out. We we're also able to get a lot of market bakers on board um, that know how to kind of provide liquidity in um, crypto markets. So we're definitely happy about um, the groups of folks that we're able to get around the table. So did you have any personal connections with them or did you reach out cold? Uh, I think we got warm intros, but we didn't know any of the investors personally beforehand. So, yeah, I think it was that also made it harder to be fundraising in May because uh, the things that investors typically care about are like kind of knowing the founders beforehand. So we kind of came in um, a little bit colder than would have been ideal. But I think things ended up working out for the best. So uh, from your perspective, what do you think is the determining factor? I'm sure there multiple but what do you think that move the move the scale for 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 the investors to 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 decide to back you yeah i think it was just around um well first of all the team i think played a large role in that uh there is like just given our backgrounds in DeFi, i think it made a lot of sense for us to be working with um the kind of investors that we did end up working with um, and I think the other thing is just around, like, a lot of the investors that we were talk talking with, they kind of saw firsthand the pain that a lot of these DeFi teams were feeling on ecosystems like um, Solana or on, like, Ethereum rollups, for example. Um, so there's definitely a pretty big opportunity from their standpoint as well. So I think that also helped move the needle around that. So if I hear you correctly, they think you are solving a actually key problem in the DeFi space that a lot of projects would be interested in. in would actually be, you know, interested in using your service. Is that right? Exactly. But, yeah. I mean, the, the kind of, yeah, go ahead. But besides the, uh, obviously the credential of, of the team members. Yeah. So I think that from their viewpoint, like they were working with teams that are facing these exact problems. So from their, from their standpoint, like this was a very real problem that needed some kind of good solution. And they think that the use case specific approach that today is taking um, is the best, like, I mean, I can't speak for them, but I, I think that is their viewpoint on it. The, the use case specific approach is going to be one of the best 
approaches out there to both solve the problem and also build out a community to um, help grow the ecosystem out. And at, at what point did you start talking to different DeFi projects about potentially having them try to use the network? Yeah, I mean, we started talking with other, like, I mean, these are essentially our customers, right? So we talk, started talking yeah. with them pretty early on earlier this year. Um, but in terms of actually getting them to start uh, building on, say, that was closer to when we had something running internally. Um, so that was closer to like the April timeframe. And then afterwards, by May, we already had some ecosystem projects that were building on top. Um, and then afterwards, um, once we had the multi-code announcement a few weeks ago, it's been kind of crazy. We've gotten a lot more inbound interest. Um, mm -hmm. So there's been, at this point, over 50 teams that are building on top. So it's been pretty fantastic just to see the kind of community reception to that. So when you talk to projects, what were some of the typical pushbacks, so to speak, that you get from projects or questions or uh, doubts? Yes. So before DYDX made their V4 announcement, the main question that people had is, why would we come to the Cosmos ecosystem, especially in that time period between Terra's collapse and DYDX before making their announcement? The main mm -hmm. question was just, no one is there in Cosmos. Like, why would we want to come and build on Cosmos? Um, but I think after DYDX V4 made their announcement, that really um, kind of changed the way that people thought about it because it went from Cosmos being this ecosystem of these application-specific chains that didn't have too many users to being this much more legitimized ecosystem where there were uh, a very, there was there was a very strong project coming on that would be drawing in a lot of users and a lot of liquidity. So suddenly it became very strategic for teams to start building in the Cosmos ecosystem. So after that, it honestly became much easier to justify building in Cosmos. Like everyone mm -hmm. kind of agreed that, okay, yes, an order matching engine built into the chain will lead to a better technical experience, but more from a strategic side, I think that that also made it much more interesting to them. I see. So do you see any change in project's attitude after the ETH merge? Uh, no, I mean, I think that the thesis is still the exact same of building on top of say, and mm -hmm. the merge doesn't really change anything around that. Like in terms of performance for Ethereum, it's not really going to change until they launch their sharded architecture. Yes. So sharding is like, I think that's going to be like 2023 sometime and we'll see when that actually ends up happening. But even with sharding, like the approach that they're taking is they're treating these shards as these data availability, as these data availability layers. And then there's going to be rollups that are actually handling most of the computation. Um, and these rollups are not necessarily going to be natively interoperable with all of the other rollups. So because of that, we don't actually think that a lot of the problems that currently exist with Ethereum rollups are actually going to get solved with sharding. But um, we'll, we'll see what ends up happening over the next couple of, couple of years. But I mean, for now, like teams want to build now and Ethereum doesn't really solve those problems. So what are the, some of the projects that are uh, starting on, say, give us some examples. Yeah, so one that's already usable in the incentivized testnet is called Vortex. So Vortex is a perpetual exchange built on say, so it's making use of the order book and matching engine. Um, so you can go around and go ahead and play around with that right now. Um, another one that's pretty interesting that recently announced they're launching is UXD. So that's a Delta neutral stable coin. Uh, and to enable this Delta neutral position, they have a long position, which is a spot asset. And then they have a short position, which is a perp position that they open on Vortex. So in their case, uh, it ends up being very interesting to build on top uh, of Vortex. So they're almost code complete at this point, and we'll see when they end up launching. Um, another project to highlight would be Axelar. So Axelar is a bridge that helps bring, in our case, the biggest thing that we need on, say, is USDC, because say is already IBC enabled, and it can interact with the other Cosmos chains that have enabled IBC. So the biggest missing piece around that was um, USDC. So now there's a stable coin that 
we can rely on for a lot of the cash settled exchanges. Um, so that's another project that uh, has just made an announcement about uh, integrating with say recently. Yeah, so that's actually something that I was going to ask you is this uh, interoperability and or, or you know cross chain messaging and cross chain bridging because if you're mm -hmm. only serving DeFi uh, projects and DeFi projects, they're supposed to serve other applications on chain, right? So mm -hmm. um, given that you are um, kind of a, a you, you know, you, you think of the, the real world counterpart, you will be aiming to become a New York or Singapore or London kind of financial center kind of thing, right? So, mm -hmm. um, but then you, these applications, they need to serve other industries. So that means some kind of bridging, some kind of like messaging cross chain need to be involved. Yeah. But this is not a very developed space in, in, yeah, in, so in, blockchain space right now. So what, what, how do you think about that? Exactly. So in general, it's not very developed. And a lot of ecosystems have bespoke bridges between them that historically have gotten hacked quite, quite frequently, unfortunately. Um, this is actually one of the reasons that we're very happy that we decided to build using the Cosmos SDK initially. So I mean, mm -hmm. at this point, we've forked both Cosmos and Tendermint Core. Um, but one of the things that we get by using Cosmos is IBC connectivity. So IBC stands for inter-blockchain communication. It's a protocol that allows there to be um, more trustless bridging and essentially data transfer between different blockchains. Um, so the way that IBC is commonly used right now is to transfer assets, like basically bridge them between like Cosmos Hub, for example, and Osmosis, but it's also going to be used for a lot of other use cases. Um, so one of the things that's more interesting to us is around interchain accounts. So you can have an account on a, let's say there's a chain, um, we could say Cosmos Hub, and they want to execute a transaction on say, they can just make use of IBC and there would be the controller chain that would enable a transaction on the host chain. And then you would never need to actually do anything on the host chain directly from the user point of view. So we think that there's a lot of pretty interesting use cases of IBC um, that just because say is kind of built with the Cosmos SDK, we benefit from pretty naturally. Yeah, but, but that only serves the projects in the Cosmos ecosystem, right? And we know that that's not where the DeFi, most of the DeFi liquidity are. Most of the DeFi mm -hmm. liquidity is still in Ethereum ecosystem. So yeah. uh, do, do, do you think for, for projects that want to get more liquidity, they will be like, uh, well, this is too far away from where our users' money are. And we yeah, don't want to so... use bridges because bridges are dangerous. Oh, okay. I mean, in that case, we think that there will start being more kind of organic activity happening in the Cosmos ecosystem, even even with like DYDXv4 coming over. But in general, I mean, yeah, we're going to be setting up bridges between, say, and other chains like Ethereum, Solana, Avalanche, etc. Um, and there will be ways to bring in liquidity from those ecosystems. But I mean, if yeah, if users are scared of bridging it over, then it's going to like, then it will need to be organic activity that happens as part of the Cosmos ecosystem, which we think is going to end up happening over the next year, like DYDX before coming over is going to draw in a lot of liquidity and users as well. And also, how do you think about integrating more like a, I call them super app type of uh, application layer projects? Because mm -hmm. that's what, what you see is like, with, for example, gaming project, move to earn projects, or any kind of uh, new bank running on blockchain, right? So they are going to be their main bread and butter will not be running an exchange, but they will have like a trading place or exchange function within their application. And they're now going to, they're basically having their own decks in their application. Yeah. 
So is there a way for you to allow them to take advantage of say, or is it going to be something entirely different? Uh, it'll definitely be possible for them to take advantage of say. Um, I think it definitely depends on the architecture that they have. For example, if they're spinning up a new Cosmos SDK based chain, it'll be very easy for there to be interchain accounts to make use of the DEX that it, DEXs that are there on top of say. Um, but I mean, otherwise there will be ways to transfer data through other mechanisms like layer zero, for example. So we definitely see a world in which these super apps would not want to be handling the infrastructure around an exchange that's on chain. Mm -hmm. um, and they would just rely on say to help out with that. And there'd be different kind of communication protocols we can make use of to facilitate that. Got it. So in general, what do you see uh, in terms of the competitiveness of the Cosmos ecosystem compared to Ethereum? I know this is like hugely controversial and everybody has their mm -hmm. own views, but you know, interested in hearing what you think. Yeah, I think that Ethereum has done a fin like, phenomenal job of being a place where a lot of retail users can go and um, just engage in DeFi applications right now. I think in the longer term, the app chain thesis is pretty interesting. And I think definitely the use case specific chain thesis is even more interesting. Um, as ICAs, like as interchain accounts become more common as, as and as IBC becomes um, more commonly used across like, well, like, like Cosmos chains that have more liquidity, I think there will be more activity happening in the Cosmos ecosystem in the near future. But I, I kind of agree that like in the near term and medium term as well, Ethereum is going to be doing a lot better just because that's already where all the users are. And it's hard to get people to move over. And when you're building a new application specific chain, there's obviously a lot of uh, difficulties around that. Um, specifically, like building out the infrastructure to onboard user, like having people go from Coinbase to your exchange or to your application specific chain correctly, like that is pretty difficult to do right now. So having those, that kind of infrastructure um, created for each um, individual app specific chain is definitely difficult to do right now. Mm. So like you mentioned, it's uh, kind of difficult to 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 convince projects to switch, right? So are you giving projects any kind of incentive for them to use your chain or what's your mm -hmm. thinking in that? Yeah, so right now all of the 50 plus projects that are building on top of say, um, there are no incentives that we give in the way. So like no grants, no kind of financial help at all. Um, the reason that they're uh, coming over is largely because they think that the ecosystem that say is building in the kind of order book uh, and matching engine that we're supporting are beneficial for their use case. Um, in the future, we likely will have some strategy similar to what other ecosystems have around mm -hmm. having ecosystem grants to start drawing in um, newer projects. But a lot of the projects that are building on top of say right now, they're just unhappy with where they're building and they've already raised money. So that like a 50K grant isn't really going to move the needle for them if they've already raised millions of dollars. But the main thing that does matter for them is is ecosystem where they can see more activity happening and where they can see their exchange scaling. So would you be would you say you, you would be targeting those uh maybe new projects that have raised the funding that's the primary uh those are a lot of the projects yeah mm -hmm. those are a lot of the projects that are building on top of say right now um and then in the future it there are a lot of folks that are interested in building on top of say but like having a grant or some kind of financial incentive to be building on top would make it easier for them to go all in on on say um so in the future there will be some kind of ecosystem uh funds to help with that right so what's the uh, revenue model that you are thinking of? Yeah, so the revenue model for say, because it's a DeFi ecosystem ends up being pretty interesting. Um, so one piece of it is pretty vanilla around the gas fees. Um, every single transaction that happens on say will need to pay some amount of gas 
we anticipate these to be pretty low gas fees, so we don't mm -hmm. think that there's going to be that much money we make off of that. Um, the second piece of the revenue model for say is tied to MEV redistribution. And we think that is honestly pretty interesting. Mm -hmm. um, so MEV, maximal extractable value, um, is when validators can reorder transactions or basically they, they decide what the content of a block should be, right? So they can exclude transactions, include their own transactions, reorder transactions, and there are ways for them to make money off of that. Mm -hmm. um, a few different ways for them to do that is first of all, through front running. So if they see that you submitted a transaction, um, they can put in their own transactions before yours, and then they can give you, they can basically sell you something at a higher price and profit off of you. Mm -hmm. So that's one way that um, MEV happens, and that is honestly pretty predatory, and that's not good for the ecosystem. But then there's other ways as well through liquidations and ARBs. So with a liquidation, let's say that you have a perps position that you've opened up. In that case, your position will be collateralized by a certain amount of money. And if you, the value of your position drops, then someone will need to sell, the protocol will sell your collateral and someone will buy it. And there will be a discount offered to anyone that's buying the collateral. Um, so there ends up being a lot of spam and a lot of users that are trying to get that um, liquidation, right? And then for ARBs, there might be different prices on different exchanges. So exchange A might be selling Bitcoin at $9, exchange B might be selling it at $10. So you can make money by buying it on exchange A and then selling it on exchange B. Um, so what we've noticed is that for liquidations and ARPs right now, it's pretty common for there to be a lot of spam that just results because people are trying to get in that first transaction. So rather than having something like that, it makes more sense to use a flashbot sell approach. Mm -hmm. um, so Flashbots is a research project built as part of the Ethereum ecosystem. And with Flashbots, they have these off-chain relayers where you can privately submit transactions and you'll be basically bidding to get a spot that is closer to the top of the block. And the way that it works is there'll be a private auction that happens, whoever ends up winning, um, they'll be running simulations to just make sure that your transaction will go through. And then afterwards, they'll uh, send that bundle of transactions to a validator and then the validator will run it. So what ends up happening from that is that you can just pay more money to make sure you win that opportunity. So we think that ends up being a very interesting way for value accrual to happen for say in the future. Um, so let's say that there's a liquidation that might have an economic value of $100. At the mm -hmm. start, we think that if we set up infrastructure like this, there might only be a few people that know about this opportunity, that there is this liquidation out there. So they might submit a bid for $1 and then they might be able to make a $99 profit off that, right? Um, in the longer term, there will be a lot more people that are aware of these opportunities. So then they might be able to submit, like they'll need to increase their bids, right? So they might need to submit a bid for $99.90 to win this $100 opportunity. And the bid that is kind of given, it'll be distributed to both validators and to delegators. And we can enable this at the chain level itself. So by doing that, the entire value of that MEV like liquidation or ARV opportunity is basically going to go and get redistributed to people that are staking um, or that are validating the chain. So that ends up being a very interesting way to drive value. And especially on a DeFi ecosystem, it ends up being even more interesting because there's going to just fundamentally be more liquidation and ARB opportunities. Interesting. That is the first time I heard of the, you know, revenue model that's built on, uh, built in on the layer one chain, uh, taking advantage of uh, MEVs. So that's interesting. So are we going to see a say token soon? Uh, yeah, so say, I mean, say, say it's a layer one chain. Um, so we do need to have a token that'll be used for securing the chain, for gas and for governance. Um, so that'll be there from day one of mainnet launch. Um, there will be some kind of community sale happening ahead of that. So we'll keep the community updated on that. But yes, there'll definitely be a say token. So give us some update on, the, you know, what's the, uh, what are we going to see in terms of timeline of uh, major events uh, and 
you mentioned also before we started the conversation that you had some uh, new updates uh, that just happened recently, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So today, um, okay, so in terms of, first of all, in terms of timelines for CA specifically, um, we're currently in an incentivized testnet period. So from the engineering side, there's a few optimizations we're trying to make to the chain itself. And then afterwards, we'll go ahead and get audited. And then we can launch on mainnet after that. So that'll probably be sometime closer to the end of Q4 or early Q1 of next year. Um, honestly, Q1 makes more sense rather than trying to launch during the holidays when there will be less interest from people to be using, say. Mm -hmm. um, the second thing that just happened is that today, one of the teams that we've incubated uh, called Nitro, um, it came out of stealth. So Nitro is an optimistic rollup that's built on top of, say, and it's supporting the Solana C-level uh, execution environment. And we think this is really, really interesting because no one has really built a Solana execution environment before. And from Say's standpoint, what we really care about is just enabling the best DEX infrastructure, right? We don't mm -hmm. care about what language it's in or what kind of ex execution environment is being used. Um, so this is very interesting for us because it is possible now for Solana teams to come and start uh, basically engaging with the Cosmos ecosystem through Say uh, in a very seamless and efficient manner. So instead of uh, EVM, this is say SVM? Exactly, yeah, it's an SVM rollup. <laughs> Okay, I, I'll probably start seeing more of that uh, used uh, in, in, in interlocutors uh, um, in, in, in coming days. So, so um, I, I want to talk about also about the, the, the industry in terms of DeFi and Web3 in general. What, mm -hmm. what, do you see, what do you see will be different in DeFi in, let's say, the next couple of years? Okay, um, so I think the biggest problem right now is the onboarding process like outside of the social views of DeFi and crypto in general like i think that there's somewhat negative attitudes towards crypto still i think that is a pretty solvable problem and that'll kind of change over the next few years as long as there's more and more people that start using DeFi. um i think one of the more difficult problems right now is around the user experience like as a user to start trading you need to first of all like go through the centralized exchange then you need to send your funds to metamask you need to store your own keys you need to do all this stuff that you don't need to do it all in a Web2 company or a mm -hmm. Web2 kind of product. Um, so I think that is one of the biggest things that's going to be changing over the next couple of years. The onboarding process for retail and the process for them to start doing anything in crypto, I think, is going to be much cleaner. And a lot of the more complicated things like bridging, for example, or even storing your private keys um, for more kind of unsophisticated users, that'll be abstracted away and it'll be kind of similar to using a Web2 product. So what you see is the most needed is the UX user experience improvement on the end user front. Yes, I mean, it, the other part that would also be nice is there's more DeFi applications that end up taking off that have like true um, differentiated use cases from centralized finance. And I think that can happen as well. Um, just because of the composable nature of DeFi, I think that something uh, like DeFi applications that are more unique will also spin up. And it, that'll also lead to more just retail want to be that wants to be trading in DeFi as well. Do you think we will see DeFi, uh, more DeFi KYC, along with the um, improvement in, in onboarding user experience? Uh, that's a good question. So I can't really speak from the regulatory side around the KYC requirements. Um, in general, it'll be a better user experience if there's less KYC. So I would hope that there's less stringent regulatory requirements around that, but I definitely do think that the onboarding experience will improve. And how about AMN, the automatic market maker that we talked about in the beginning, right? That's like a less of a scalable approach. So what, what do you think will be the role of AMM in DeFi in the future? 
Yeah, I, I think AMMs are here to stay, to be honest. Um, I mean, we are building a chain that is optimized for order books, but mm -hmm. I think that AMMs have their place in the industry. As we were talking about before, around assets where there's not too much liquidity, the long tail assets, and also in cases where you want retail to be providing liquidity, um, AMMs end up being a very good way to get that started. Um, so because of that, in my opinion, like order books are going to be solving a lot of other use cases, but for those specific use cases, an AMM might be better. Um, but if you have deeper liquidity, if you have market makers that are willing to provide liquidity, um, then it makes a lot more sense to be using an order book because you can have better price efficiency and you can just have a better trading experience. Yeah, that seems to be the, the way that DeFi, you know, eventually would be need to scale to a billion, 500 million, a billion users. So you can, you know, AMM is not going to get us there. Right. So. Yeah, I think that DeFi in general will start mimicking a lot of the things that have happened in traditional finance. So anything that we've seen happening and being successful in TradFi, I think that DeFi will start having parallels in its own way. And like we're seeing this with MEV as well. Mm -hmm. um, that's kind of similar to the PFOF system that's there in the traditional finance world. So I, I think there's going to be similar to what? Uh, PFOF profit for order flow in the traditional finance world. So I like i'm just saying that like mev kind of is similar mm -hmm. to that and i think there's going to be more and more parallels like that that we start seeing and order books are going to be one example of those interesting so um you know as we are wrapping up i also want to know in terms of your personal experience as a founder as a entrepreneur right um mm -hmm. what are some of the things that you learned uh, since you became a founder that you yeah, think so other founders thing... should, should take note yeah, so I think probably two things, and they're both around like team building. Um, in terms of the culture that we wanted to incubate at say, or inculcate at say, I originally thought it'd be important for us to focus on things like speed and quality of work. But I'm coming to the conclusion now that both of these are second order effects. And like the primary thing you should be focusing on is inculcating a sense of ownership. Um, if people on the team feel like they have ownership in whatever is being built, then they're naturally going to be working more quickly and also having better quality output. So that's one thing that I've that I did not anticipate before I got started on this journey. Like fostering a sense of ownership is really important. Um, the second thing that comes to mind is around hiring. So for hiring, I think in, originally we had this mindset that okay, if someone is good, then we should go ahead and hire them. But now I'm coming to the conclusion that it's better to wait to find someone that's a great fit for the role rather than finding someone that's a good fit for the role because there ends up being an opportunity cost both in terms of the time it takes to onboard someone and also in the amount of like, I mean, you're paying them a salary, so that means that you cannot pay that salary to someone else. Um, so I think focusing on just a great fit is um, worth it in the longer term for the company. Mm, that makes sense. Uh, what other advisors you will have for founders, operators starting in the Web3 space? What, what do you think that people are not doing enough or uh, doing wrong or that kind of thing? Anything uh, that came to mind? I have a lot of friends from Web2 that start building in Web3. And I mm. like one of the biggest problems, and this isn't a Web3 specific problem, this is just more a new founder problem, is not talking enough to your customers. So mm. a lot of the ideas that I see, I kind of think to myself, like, have you talked to customers about this just to get a sense of whether or not they really need this? Um, so I think that would be the biggest thing for any new, new person that's entering the space is just talk to the customers. like go to conferences, meet people, and make sure that what you're trying to build is actually a problem rather than just something that you think could be interesting to work on. That makes a lot of sense. That, that's, that's actually, a, it sounds basic, but you know, I agree. <laughs> Most founders don't, don't do it enough. Uh, it's hard to, to, to actually practice that. So finally, anything that you want to let us know about your project, uh, you know, and also how, how do people connect with you if they want yeah, to? Yeah, so to, 
Yeah, so to connect with me, you can go ahead and just reach out to me on Twitter. Um, it's jendra underscore jogue on Twitter. Um, in terms of the project itself, so right now we're in an incentivized testnet period. So anyone that's participating right now, uh, they will be eligible to get rewards um, when the mainnet launch happens. So we encourage people to come and try playing around in the incentivized testnet. You can make use of Vortex protocol right now, um, and you can try to help catch bucks with the core chain. And the other thing that I'm going to, that I think would be important to mention is that there will be an airdrop happening in the future. So we'll be posting more announcements around that, but there's going to be a lot of ways for the community to benefit from what we're doing even before we end up um, having any kind of token sale. And how do people uh, hear about that, get updated on that? Yeah, so there's a Say Network uh, Twitter. Um, so you can go ahead and, ahead and follow us on that. It's just S-E-I-N-E-T-W-R-K. Um, and outside of that, there's the Discord as well. So all of the new alpha will be first getting dropped in Discord, and then afterwards it'll be available on Twitter as well. Well, Jay, it's been a pleasure talking to you, and thank you so much for being on Tasha Labs. Awesome. Thank you so much, Tasha.